Please rise for the reading of God's Word from the 17th chapter of Acts. We'll read again verses 16 through 21. Hear now God's Word. Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Uh, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear something new. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Be seated. Last Sunday, we began considering Paul's arrival in the ancient city of Athens, famous for its intellectual history its schools, its architecture. But what stood out the most to the apostle was that it was a city given to idols, overrun with idols, full of idols. He saw behind the external beauty, he saw something very disturbing. Remember, idolatry is the substitution of anything that is created For the Creator. People may worship statues and other images, but they may also worship things like nature, money, mankind, power, history, social and political systems, instead of the God who created those things. Nevertheless, in Athens, there were a lot of physical statues. Uh, physical idols, which represented many false gods. No doubt the first and second commandments must have immediately come to the apostle's mind. He was well-versed in those, of course. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. Or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And so we recognize that what Paul saw in Athens we too are to see around us. In our case, we have a nation given over to idols. We always react to the things we see. So last week we took a look at what Paul saw. Today we want to look at what he felt and also what he did. You see, artistic things, writing, things that are sung, things that are drawn or sculpted or any kind of artistic expression always prompt some kind of an interpretation, some kind of reaction, 
some kind of an emotion. I suspect that Paul's interpretation and reaction to these artistic depictions was not what the creators themselves had been wanting. They were trying to evoke uh, admiration, worship, tribute. But God's word is what interprets the world. That's the truth. And God says these were idols. These are false gods. And so we're led immediately in this discussion because we see that Paul is provoked in his spirit to ask the question, what role do emotions play in the life of a Christian? Are our feelings important in motivating us as Christians, or are we to somehow shun emotion and simply act upon rational evaluation? R.L. Dabney wrote that feeling or emotion is the temperature of thought. The powers of feeling do not constitute the least important department of the human spirit, nor the least noble. The feelings or emotions practically make the man. Intellect is the cold, feeble magnetism which gives the ship its compass to steer by. Feeling is the motive power, throbbing within the vessel and propelling it, without which the ship, in spite of the needle pointing with its subtle intelligence to the pole, rots in the harbor and makes no voyage at all. Paul could have simply analyzed the situation in Athens, perhaps devised a strategic plan for reaching the area with information concerning the Christian faith. And in conformity to the commands of the Great Commission, he could have gone about this task of instructing the Athenians in a very systematic and even professional way. In other words, Paul could have simply done his duty. But the situation at Athens stirred up some very definite emotions in the apostle. And these emotions are going to motivate and define his action. Not without knowledge or a plan, but in addition to his knowledge and his plans. One of the problems I think we suffer from is we do see trouble. We see trouble in our culture. We see idols everywhere. But we've grown numb to it. We've grown used to it. We've grown dull of hearing. Our emotions are not provoked anymore. It's just routine. We're no longer motivated or stirred. You see, our emotional state should have a profound, really it does have a profound effect on our actions. It's an inescapable concept. So you've no doubt often said, I don't feel like doing this or that. Or I feel like doing something. Sometimes we say or do things in anger or excitement that we might regret later. Our emotions got ahead of our thought. While as Christians, we certainly have an obligation to obey, regardless of how we feel, the right feeling certainly makes the job easier, and we usually do a better job when we are passionate about the thing that we're doing. You may not feel like going to work, but you go anyway. 
But if you feel good about going to work, if you love your work, you'll probably be motivated to do a great job. And so when Christians have the right feelings and motives, their actions will be reflected in that, whether that's in their family, in their marriage, with their children, or in their work, or their interactions with other people. As a result of what Paul saw, we're told that Paul's spirit was provoked in him. As he surveyed the great city of Athens and comprehended the idolatry of the city, really what this word means is he became very distressed, upset, we might say. The Greek verb used here to describe Paul's emotion, emotional response is paroxoneto. The English word that we have that comes from that you might not be familiar with, uh, used to be used more often, uh, is paroxysm, which means a sudden and kind of uncontrollable outburst of emotion. Uh, uh, in fact, it's originally had a medical association that was used to describe a seizure. It also meant to stimulate, or especially it meant to irritate, to provoke, to be painfully excited, or even aroused to anger. The verb is used in the imperfect sense, tense, which expresses not a sudden loss of temper, but rather a continuous, settled reaction to what he saw. So paroxoneto is the verb which is regularly used in the Septuagint, the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament to describe the reaction of Jehovah to idolatry. God is provoked by idols. Thus, when the Israelites made the golden calf at Mount Sinai, and later when they were guilty of gross idolatry and immorality in relation to the Baal of Peor, and when the northern kingdom made another calf to worship in Samaria, we are told that they provoked the Lord to anger. We read in Isaiah 65, 1-7, I was sought by those who did not ask for me, the Lord says. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, According to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you are. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, the Lord says, but I will repay, even repay in their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former works in their bosom. Thus, Paul also, because he was like his heavenly father, who had read his Bible, 
who understood how he was to see what he saw around him, conformed his thoughts to the Lord's, his feelings. He was provoked to anger. He was grieved. He was indignant, just as God himself was. He was jealous for God. And for some reason, namely the honor and the glory of the name of God, excuse me, the same reason, namely the honor and glory of God's name, is why he felt that way. Why should Paul have been provoked concerning the idolatry of the Athenians unless they were under a moral obligation to keep the first and second commandment? I'm going to ask that again because it's an important question. Sometimes people think, oh, well, the Bible is just for Christians. The Bible is just for Israel. No, the Word of God, He's the God of all the nations. He will hold the nations to account. He will judge the nations, and He will use this as the standard by which He will judge them. Paul is provoked by this idolatry because the Athenians, like everyone else, is under a moral obligation to worship the true God. Scripture calls this emotion jealousy. For example, Exodus 34:14 says that Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. It's one of his attributes. Jealousy is a resentment of rivals. Whether it's good or evil depends on whether the rival has any business being there. To be jealous of someone who threatens to outshine us in beauty or brains is sinful. Because we can't claim a monopoly in those areas. On the other hand, if a third party enters a marriage, the jealousy of the injured person who is being displaced is righteous... Because the intruder has no right to be there. It's the same with God. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to idols. Our Creator and Redeemer has a right to our exclusive allegiance and is jealous if we transfer that allegiance to another. Christians should share in this jealousy for God's name. Paul's paroxysm, which he felt in Athens, wasn't due to a bad temper. It wasn't due to pity for even the Athenians' ignorance. It was not even due to fear for their eternal salvation. It was rather due to his abhorrence of idolatry, which aroused within him jealousy for the name of God as he saw men so depraved as to be giving to idols the honor and the glory that that was only due to the one living and true God. We should be indignant over the idolatry around us. Now, I'd like us to consider, I thought about this, a comparison of Paul's and Lot's emotional response to ungodly cultures. 
We read in 2 Peter 2, 7-8, And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. So in, in some senses, there's a similarity. He looks around, he sees this idolatrous culture, and Lot is vexed. He's troubled. Paul is troubled. There are two different Greek words used in this passage to describe Lot's emotional response to the culture of Sodom. They are translated oppressed or vexed and tormented. The word translated oppressed or vexed in verse 7 means to overpower, to exhaust, to wear out. He was overwhelmed. It's the word used in Acts 7.24 to describe the person that was being beaten by the Egyptian taskmaster, taskmaster, the man who Moses slew the Egyptian over. In other words, Lot, though a righteous man himself, right with God, had become a slave to the culture and it had worn him out. It had beat him up. He was defeated. The word translated tormented in verse 8 uh, means originally the word was used to describe a touchstone, which was a stone called the lapis uh, latius. And when metals were touched to the stone, it would indicate any alloy which might be mixed with them. And the word later came to be used to describe the examination of a person by torture. In Luke 16:23, the words used to describe the torments of the wicked after death. And in Revelation 12:2, it's used to describe the pains of childbirth. In other words, Lot felt like he was in hell. Paul's emotional response to the Athenians was quite different from Lot's emotional response to Sodom. In Lot's case, the culture had overcome him, and it was a source of misery for him. Paul, on the other hand, felt the need to overcome the culture. Let's look at how these two men's emotional response then affected what they did. Verse 17, Acts 17. Therefore he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. So what did Paul do as a result of this provocation he felt in his spirit, having seen the idols? He didn't just throw up his hands in despair. He didn't retreat, nor did he curse the Athenians, nor did he run out and start smashing idols. Instead, he started speaking to whoever happened to be there. Whoever was in front of him. He sought by the proclamation of the gospel to persuade them to turn from their idols to the living God and to give to the Son the glory that was due his name. The provocation of his spirit opened his mouth in testimony. Paul spoke to three groups. First, he went to the synagogue and he reasoned 
with both the Jews and the God-fearers. That was his pattern and habit. But, uh, and this would be the equivalent of our going to churches to speak, to the, speak the gospel uh, to those who already believed the scriptures or at least who respected the scriptures. But second, and in this case, because there was no synagogue, he goes to the agora, to the market. Every day he went and he spoke with whoever happened to be there. Our modern equivalent to this might be perhaps to go to the mall or the park or the workplace or wherever people might gather. He had not been invited to speak at an organized meeting, so he spoke with whoever happened to be there. And as a result of doing what he knew to do, that is, again, speaking whether at the synagogue or at the agora, what happened is, and this is important, God opened up a third opportunity, as we will see later in this chapter, to speak to the leaders and the philosophers in the city. A bigger opportunity. He wasn't just waiting for the big opportunity. And so ultimately, his having gone to the marketplace to speak to whoever happened to be there, people overheard him, and he, he, will, be, he will receive an invitation to come to the Areopagus to speak. Closest thing we would have to this today might be to go to the university. But the main point here is that Paul was moved to action. He didn't wring his hands and he wasn't in retreat. He wasn't at home watching cable news and worrying about whatever the latest thing is that we're all supposed to be worried about. He had the answer. He had the victory. He had the hope. He had the solution. He understood the fundamental problem, which is always the same. He didn't say, well, things are so bad, I guess the Lord must be coming back soon. He didn't excuse himself from action on the grounds that, well, I'm here all by myself. Not much I can do. And he didn't get discouraged because the odds were somehow against him. If God be for us, who can be against us? Instead, being motivated by his love for God and jealousy for God's name, he immediately went to work. Talking to people. Preaching the gospel. Seeking to change the culture through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. What was Lot's response to what he felt? It was somewhat different. Quite different, actually. We can read of his actions in Genesis 19, but I'm just going to refer to that this morning. In effect, we see Lot, a man who being overcome by a wicked culture, had begun to compromise with it. He apparently held a position of influence in Sodom since we're told that he sat at the gate On the city council, he did request that the men of the city not not act wickedly with his visitors, but then he immediately acted wickedly himself by offering his two daughters to the men, just as many Christians offer their children to the culture today. We think it's okay. You can look like the culture. You can sound like the culture. You can listen to the culture's music. Go ahead, I'll just let, I'll let the culture have you. 
You do it your way. It's apparent that Lot had even failed to be faithful in the instruction of his family. When he pled with his sons-in-law to leave with him, they thought he was joking. His own wife obviously resisted leaving with him. And even his two young daughters acted in a wicked manner as they engaged in incest. And Lot allowed himself to fall into drunkenness. Here's a case of a believer who allowed himself to be overcome by a wicked culture. Who utterly failed in bringing any godly change. He had a siege mentality and it cost him his family and it almost cost him his life. Two believers... Paul and Lot, two different responses. One is moved to godly action and the other moved to cowardly retreat. So, I ask you, what do you feel? You feel like righteous Lot, oppressed and worn out by the culture that's around you, tormented by the ungodliness? Shaking your head all the time. I can't believe what I just saw or read or heard. My, my. You know what they're doing now in California? You know what they're doing now in Texas? You know what's going on? You know what the court has said? You know what the president said? You know this? I mean, there is an endless string of this. It's what would we expect? We're a nation given over to idols. Or do you feel like righteous Paul, provoked in your spirit because of that idolatry that's around you? Do you feel a jealousy for the glory of Jesus Christ? God has promoted him to the supreme place of honor in in order that, what, every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge his lordship. Do you believe that? Not just the church folks, but every person has an obligation to bow the knee to Christ. And that whenever he is denied his rightful place in people's lives, we should be jealous for his name. And then what do you do? Do you like Lot retreat from the culture around you? You think all of, of all the excuses of why you can't make a difference? You go along to get along? Has the culture begun to affect your own judgments like it did lots? And that's why you're letting your kids and your family flirt with this world full of idols? Or just indifferent, passive? Abdicate. Has the culture overcome you so that you have become compromised with it? Or like Paul, has the provocation of your spirit led you to godly action? Do you speak to those who ever, who ever happen to be there? Your family, your neighbors, your friends. At work? school, in the marketplace, do you seek 
to spread the kingdom of God and to overthrow this ungodly culture by proclaiming the good news, not just with your words, but how you live. In your marriage, with your children. Showing the beauty of the gospel, adorning the gospel. Perhaps if you're not doing as Paul did, perhaps it's because you don't feel what Paul felt. You may not, you may have become a lot, but it's not too late to become a Paul. A fresh look at God and his glorious son can lift you above all of this. This is not some little bitty God up in heaven wringing his hands about what's going on down here. This is holy God, the creator of everything that is, every atom, every molecule, every person. And it has all been made to give him glory that he deserves because he is holy. He is sovereign. He is majestic. And that doesn't deserve some kind of puny, wimpy, indifferent response. When you feel this way, then you can take a fresh look at the world and see through godly eyes a world that is full of idols... And then you can see a world whose only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are moved with compassion and love and affection. Will you pray this morning that God will open both your heart and your eyes that we might be a people jealous for his name. That we might be a people that declares the good news. So I want to close by asking you to pray with me a part of David's prayer from Psalm 51. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and, like we might do in a wedding, uh, repeat after me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners shall be converted to you. Amen. A nation or a city full of idols is alarming, or should be alarming, but so is a single heart that is full of idols. Jesus is the Lord, and he allows no rivals. And we too should be provoked in our spirits. 
Idols promise some short-term happiness or blessing. If they promise you the moon, they'll give you hell. God said to his people in Hosea 8.4, With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. False gods will kill you. God will kill all false gods. 1 Samuel 5, 1-5. I love this story. It's the story of the Ark of the Covenant coming back and, uh, and the, Phil- or the Philistines have taken the Ark of the Covenant and they bring it in before their false god, Dagon. And I like this story enough that when I, years ago, many years ago, was in the jewelry business, in the retail business, the company had sent you know, different pieces of jewelry. Well, there was a little uh, stone idol-looking thing that was a pendant. And so I had the privilege of being able to arrange and display things in the case uh, for the window. And so I took that idol and laid it on its face and had a cross right in front of it. So hear that story in light of that. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it in from Ebenezer and Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon falling, fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And then uh, when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So as we come to the table of the Lord, we come to renew our covenant promise that he alone is our God and there is no other. Amen. O Lord, what comfort, what assurance, what blessing, what boldness comes from knowing that you have given your Christ to the world and also given him all authority in heaven and on earth, that you have committed all judgment and rule to him. May we live today in the light of who Christ is, what he has done, and what he is now doing, and what he will continue to do until his reign is recognized and acknowledged by all. Bless now our rest, our food, and our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.